Today's reading is taken from 1 Kings 22, and we're looking at verses 1 to 40. For three years there was no war between Aram and Israel. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. The king of Israel had said to his officials, Don't you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and yet we are doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram? So he asked Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight against Ramoth-Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel asked Jehoshaphat, uh, King of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord. But I hate him, because he never prophesies anything good about me, always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. The king should not say such a thing, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of the officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria, with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of Kenaniah, had made iron horns, and he declared, This is what the Lord says. With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. Now all the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth-Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, the other prophets without exception are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. When he arrived, the king asked Micaiah, Shall we go to war against Ramoth-Gilead or not? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? Micaiah continued, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing round him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, finally a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. Now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. And Zedekiah, son of Kenaniah, went up and slapped 
Micaiah in the face. Which way did the spirit from the Lord go when he, when he went from me to speak to you, he asked. Micaiah replied, you'll find out on the day you, you go to hide in an inner room. The king of Israel then ordered, take Micaiah, Micaiah and send him back to Ammon, the ruler of the city, and to, and, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says. Put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah declared, If you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, Mark my words, all you people. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Aram had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, do not fight with anyone, small or great, except the king of Israel. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, surely this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him. But when Jehoshaphat cried out, the chariot commanders saw that he was not the king of Israel and stopped pursuing him. But someone drew, his ba- someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. The king told his chariot driver, wheel around and get me out of the fighting. I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran onto the floor of the chariot and that evening he died. As the sun was setting, a cry spread through the army, every man to his town, every man to his land. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried him there. They washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, as the word of the Lord had declared. As for the other events of Ahab's reign, including all he did, the palace he built, adorned with ivory, and the cities he fortified, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Ahab rested with his ancestors, and Ahaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. This is God's word. Hi, thanks very much for reading. Good morning. My name's Matt. For those of you who I've not met, I'm one of the assistant ministers here. Let's pray before we dive in to this story. Heavenly Father, as that video we watched a few minutes ago reminded us. Eternity is real. Father, we pray that you will use this story to inoculate us against forgetting that. Please help us to hear you as you speak to us. Please help us to feel the the drama of it. Please change us. Amen. Amen. As Matt said, we come to the last in our series this morning on One King's where we're dealing with Ahab and his demise. We've said, well, as it, as it indicates on the screen, we've said all through this series, the back end of the book of 1 Kings is, is about two thrones. Or you say the battle, the battle of two thrones. On the one hand, Yahweh, the Lord, the God over all. And on the other hand, Baal the small G God, who we've said all along sort of stands for any object of worship, any ideology, any ism, any person who sets themselves up in opposition to the Lord, the true God. 
And in this story, there have been uh, wonderful stories to listen to, but we've seen that sort of cosmic battle, if you like, personified by the battle between Elijah, God's true faithful prophet, on the one hand, and then Ahab, the despotic, tyrannical king of Israel, the northern kingdom. We've seen that he is a man who is happy to lead his nation off in false worship of Baal, the small g god. He's a king who cares nothing, really, for his people. He's happy to stain the land with injustice if it means that he can feather his own nest. But by the end of today's passage, Ahab will be dead. And actually, that is, that is no surprise. That is no surprise to us. Actually, if we, if we remember from last week, have a look back, will you, just uh, across the page. Uh, we're still on page where are we? 364, if you've closed your Bibles. Open them up. Page 364. And have a look about uh, the passage we looked at last week. 1 Kings 21, starting at verse 17. See, throughout today's story, the, the promise of God's judgment hangs over the head of Ahab. The promise, God's word of judgment is there. Verse 17, chapter 21. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Tishbite, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. You have, you have not murdered a man and seized, have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. God's word of judgment hangs over Ahab throughout this story. And we're going to see him desperately try and escape that word of judgment, but ultimately fail. Now look, it's been said, uh, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he does not exist. And I've said from up here before, actually, that there's a lot of truth to that. But strictly speaking, you might more properly say the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that there won't be any judgment for sin. That's the the lie that Satan has been peddling since the beginning, isn't it? You will not surely die, he whispered. It doesn't matter how you live. There is no day of reckoning. You'll get away with it. It doesn't matter as long as you're true to yourself. You will not surely die. The lie that Satan has been peddling since the beginning. The lie that in this story this morning, Ahab is desperate to believe. A lie that we'll see is still being peddled to this day. But a lie, a lie that God is far too loving to want any of us to believe. So as we look at this uh, ultimately tragic, but, but on the way at times hilarious story of Ahab, God wants, us to, wants, wants to inoculate us against believing that lie. And he's going to do that by teaching us this. This is our, that's our main point. This is our headline, if you like, for this morning. We cannot escape 
God's word of judgment. We cannot escape God's word of judgment. You can follow along on the back of the service sheets if you like. Our main point is we cannot escape God's word of judgment, but in the process of getting there, we've got a few lessons to learn along the way first. So join me with you, chapter 22, verse 1. Let's get into the story. And you see, verse 1, it's a time of peace. There's peace between Israel and Aram. Aram uh, just refers to the country of Syria. There's peace externally. And and there's uh, cordial relationships between Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom between, on the one hand, uh, Ahab in the north and in the south, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And together, verses 3 and 4, Ahab and Jehoshaphat agree a plan. They want to annex Ramoth-Gilead. And Ramoth-Gilead, that is a a profitable uh, sort of city on a major trading route, very useful to have in your possession if you want to swell your coffers as a king. This is Bush and Blair, this is Barak and Dave agreeing their military strategy together. But first, just one, just one little thing, says uh, Jehoshaphat. Have a look at verse 5. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, first, seek the counsel Literally in Hebrew, seek the word of the Lord. And what happens next teaches us our first point on the handout. Those who preach God's word of judgment are never popular. That's our first point. Those who preach God's word of judgment are never popular. So verse 6, perhaps just to humor Jehoshaphat, uh, perhaps just to humor his desire to inquire of the Lord, Ahab brings together the prophets. And he says, verse 6, shall I go to war against Ramoth-Gilead or shall I refrain? And lo and behold, what answer does he get? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Phew, what a relief, how inconvenient it would have been if these religious people had kind of stood in the way of his desire for profit. That's what every king wants, isn't it, really? A prophet who will kind of add add a veneer of religious respectability for him to do what he wanted to do in the first place. But Jehoshaphat smells a rat, and so should we. You see, the question is, who who are these prophets who tell Ahab what he wants to hear? Well, commentators disagree over exactly who they are. Uh, For our purposes, in a sense, it it doesn't matter too much. The, The key thing is that while they claim to be able to speak for the Lord, they are not prophets of the Lord. See, that, I think, is what is behind Jehoshaphat's sort of um, tactful but pointed question in verse 7. Have a look down verse 7, see what he says to Ahab. Jehoshaphat asked, is there no longer a prophet of the Lord whom we can inquire of? And then verse 8, this is is where Ahab shows his cards. This is what he shows what's really going on in his heart. Verse 8, there is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good for me. It's always bad. He's Micaiah, son of Imlah. Ahab has no interest in listening to the Lord because whenever he does, he's confronted with God's word of judgment. That's why he hated Elijah for all these chapters. That's why he hates 
Micaiah now. Ahab hates anyone who speaks God's word of judgment to him. That's the lesson for us. Those who preach God's word of judgment are never popular. Verse 8. See how it carries on. End of verse 8. Jehoshaphat rebukes Ahab. The king should not say such a thing, he says. So verse 9, Micaiah is summoned for. But while, while the, uh, the attendant goes out, goes off to get Micaiah, we're treated to this ridiculous scene of these prophets, these 400 prophets, uh, sort of performing before the two kings in their royal robes. And look, verse 11, this guy, this guy called Zedekiah, he seems to go in for the most theatrics. Have a look at verse 11. Now Zedekiah, son of Canana had made iron horns and he declared, this is what the Lord says, with these you will gore the Arameans and they will be destroyed. I mean, it's just it's pure theatrics. It's like, uh, it's like the Archbishop of Canterbury walking down to, to number 10 with a homemade Thor hammer, waving it around his head and saying, with this you are going to smash those bureaucrats in Brussels. I mean, it's exactly, it's exactly what he wants to hear. Zedekiah is telling Ahab what he wants. Of course the king of Israel likes listening to that kind of prophecy. A word from the Lord that says everything's all right. You do what you want to do. You've nothing to worry about. That kind of prophecy is always, always going to be popular. The sad truth is, of course, in every generation, there will be those in the religious establishment who give up speaking honestly and openly about what the Bible says of God's word of judgment, there will always be people who instead tell others what they want to hear, what is the popular consensus at the time. You can think of those in our generation who would deny the reality of hell. You can think of those who would advocate sexual ethics that are patently opposed to what the Bible teaches, but yet who say, oh, God is happy with that arrangement. You can think of those who say, oh, how intolerant to insist on repentance and faith in Jesus. Surely we're all on a path up the same mountain. You'll always be more popular, always, if you dial down talk of judgment. And Micaiah is about to face that temptation to dial down talk of judgment acutely. Have a look at verse 13. Verse 13, the messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, look, the other prophets, without exception, are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. Tell the king what he wants to hear, Micaiah. Let your stock rise in the king's eyes. Gather some popularity. Micaiah's first answer in verse 15 is it's just withering sarcasm to the king. Do you spot that? Oh, attack and be victorious, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. That's just pure, it's pure sarcasm. Ahab pushes him, and then finally, verse 17, we get the real verdict. Verse 17, Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. Ahab, Israel will have no master because you, king, are going to die and your people will be scattered. That is not a word that gains you popularity in Ahab's court. That is a word of judgment 
and Micaiah is despised for it. Skip down, look at verse 26. I'll skip over the column. Verse 26. The king of Israel then ordered, take Micaiah and send him back to Amon, the rule of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says. Put this fellow in prison. Give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Those who preach God's word of judgment are never popular. And so the lesson for us is in those we choose to listen to, in the way we speak of God and what he's revealed in the Bible. Beware the popular option. doesn't mean we deliberately try to be offensive or be unpopular. But we remember that this is the pattern throughout the Bible story. Those who preach God's word of judgment are never popular. But we keep on preaching because point two, point two on the handout, those who ignore God's word of judgment are deceived. Those who ignore God's word of judgment are deceived. We're in verses 19 to 28. See, as Micaiah continues to deliver the Lord's word, we now get the divine perspective. We move from the throne room of the king of Israel to the throne room of the king of heaven. Ahab and Jehoshaphat are making their plans, but the king of heaven, he's making his plans. Verse 20, we hear the Lord speak. Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? The Lord asks the host of heavenly spirits. Uh, and I take it that that host of heavenly spirits includes those that are, that are morally good and those that are morally evil. Finally, one comes forward with a workable plan. And the upshot, or the, the summary, and it is just a summary, the summary, verse 23, Micaiah declares, So now... Ahab, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. See, these, the, these prophets' words are not merely the sort of fawning platitudes. They are also the evil lies of a deceiving spirit that will ultimately lead Ahab to his death. We need to stop there and pause there. Because at this point, I'm sure we're all going, what? Are you kidding me? This, uh, at this point, we're kind of going, uh, hang on a minute. Surely that looks entirely immoral on God's part. Doesn't that look like God is endorsing lying? Doesn't that look like God is sort of uh, uh, luring this man to his death? Well, let's just, let's pause it's, a, it's an important question. Before we put God in the dock, though, we need to look very carefully, though, at what the text is actually saying. So, uh, please do speak to me about this afterwards. But four, four little things we want to say when we come to a tricky verse like this. The, the first thing to say is that, don't forget, this is prophecy. And in, in the Bible, when prophets speak, they very often use sort of um, symbolic or picture language. So the first thing to say is, well, we don't, you don't have to assume that this is exactly like a sort of a CCTV record of what happened. 
The second thing to say is, if you look, at, at no point does the Lord give sort of a, a moral approval to the evil spirit's plan to lie. The Lord says, yes, it will work. The Lord knows what the consequences will be, but the Lord does not give moral approval to the spirit's lie. So I take it, considered in and of itself, the, the intention of the spirit to lie, in and of itself, is a morally evil act. Thirdly, note that this evil spirit is told by the Lord to go to a man who has already, he's already shown that he has absolutely no desire in listening to what the Lord says anyway. So, so he's only getting what he wants. And fourthly, and I think perhaps most importantly, think about it, there is no deception on God's part here. God, the Lord is going full disclosure for Ahab. He's telling him what is going on. So, so Ahab isn't being deceived. There's a sense in which at this point, what he could and what he should have done is repented and come back to the Lord. Yet Ahab still chooses to listen to the false prophets. All of which is to say that, that this episode matches entirely with what we see in the rest of Scripture. God is entirely sovereign over everything. That is true. But yet, equally, human beings are morally responsible and morally culpable agents who have decisions to make. It ties in with that. It also ties in with the fact that that God never does evil. God never does evil. All that God does is entirely good and entirely light. But God in his freedom is able to use morally culpable evil agents to achieve his purposes. Speak to me afterwards if you've still got questions about that. The main thing to notice is that as we observe, as we observe this scene, we realize this. Those who ignore God's word of judgment are deceived. The so-called prophets are deceived in what they say. Ahab is deceived in what he hears. They're deceived by that same lie that Satan has been whispering since the beginning. You will not surely die. God will not surely judge you. Now listen, of course, of course, the majority of the world are not as grotesque as Ahab. But Satan hates all of humanity without exception. The wicked truth is, Satan knows there is a day of judgment coming for every single person on this planet. He knows that. He doesn't doubt it. But he would love each of us to believe his lies, that we would walk blindly into the storm of God's coming judgment. Those who ignore God's word of judgment are deceived. 
And this is tragic because, as the final act of Ahab's life teaches us, thirdly, on the sheet, those who try and escape God's word of judgment can't. So in verse 29 now, let's see, let's see what happens. See, Ahab, had, Ahab has had this kind of flashing neon warning light from Micaiah saying, don't do it. But he still listens to those false prophets. Verse 29, he and Jehoshaphat go up to try and take Ramoth Gilead. Well, he's clearly a little bit rattled, isn't he? Otherwise, he wouldn't take the precaution in verse 30. Uh, he says, verse 30 to Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So that's because back then, obviously it was normal for the king to be very visible on the battlefield, to, to lead and to inspire his troops. And in that sense, he was a kind of a magnet for, for enemy fire, because if you get rid of the king, obviously the, the troops' morale is shattered, and perhaps they'll desert. And Ahab thinks he can escape God's word of judgment by kind of lurking around the battlefield, incognito, disguised as a normal man. I don't quite know how he gets Jehoshaphat to agree to, to sort of being the magnet for fire for him. And Jehoshaphat says, okay, that sounds like a good idea. But he does. And initially, it, seem, it seems to work. And it's a good job he tries it because verse 31, the king of Aram is on a, he's got a personal vendetta, it seems, against Ahab. He's ordered his 32 chariot commanders to make like kind of laser guided chariots when you see, when you see Ahab honing on him. And initially, it seems to work. Until the sort of the ruse is discovered, they realize it's, uh, it's not Ahab and they wheel off uh, and go somewhere else. Maybe that's been enough. Maybe that sort of cunning deception has been enough to uh, save Ahab from the word of judgment that's been hanging over his head all this chapter. And then verse 34. It's just, it's just totally random. We're not told this guy's name in the Hebrew. It's just, it's just a man. It's just a random man on the opposite side. Just draws his arrow. Maybe he's, I don't know, trying to work out which way the wind's going or trying to shoot a duck or something. I don't know. He just draws his arrow. And it just so happens, randomly, to find its way to the king of Israel. And it just so happens to randomly find its way between the tiny, tiny chink between his armor. And it just so happens to cause the death that God said was going to come to him. Verse 37, so the king died and was brought to Samaria and they buried him there. They washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria where the prostitutes bathed and the dogs licked up his blood as the word of the Lord had declared, just as Elijah, just as Micaiah had said. God's word of judgment had been hanging over Ahab the whole of this chapter. He thought he could escape it But he can't. Those who try and escape God's word of judgment can't. And here's, here's the thing. We've not done what Ahab has done. But the sobering truth is that there is a word of judgment that, that hangs over humanity. It's been hanging over humanity for these 2,000 years now. Ryan mentioned it last week when he preached. Listen to this from the book of Acts. God commands all people everywhere to repent. 
For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ puts the world on notice that judgment day is coming. A day when we will stand before God and all our lives, all our actions, all our thoughts will be laid bare. And the standard against which every single man, woman, and child will be judged is simple, and it is terrifying. It is this. Have you loved God with all you are, always? Have you loved other people with the same commitment and to the same extent to which you've loved yourself? And if we have not, there is eternal punishment. That is a terrifying prospect, and Satan would love us to ignore it. He'd love it for every person on this planet to be like those on the Titanic, who thought they were safe and who danced on oblivious even when there was a gaping tear in the hull and their fate was sealed. And Satan's playbook of deception has got many, many pages in it. Let the atheist be deceived into thinking that reality is only what you can kind of prod and poke in a laboratory. Let them think there is no judgment coming. Distract the contented middle-class professional from thoughts of eternity with happy holidays and concerns about school fees and mortgage payments and the golf handicap. Deceive the moralistic person into thinking that they can uh, somehow escape God's judgment just by doing a few more good things. Deceive the morally liberal person into thinking that they can redefine what God's standards of judgment are. Satan would love us to believe such lies. He'd love us to believe such lies because he knows that if we did take thoughts of eternity seriously, if we did take God's word of coming judgment seriously, we might just, we might just flee to the one person who can see us safely through that judgment. If we took thoughts of God's judgment seriously, we might just tell our friends how they could flee to the one person who would see them safely through that judgment. Because as that verse that we opened with tells us, in his love, God himself has provided a way to escape the coming judgment. We can't escape it by what we do, but God has provided the means to pass through it. And that is by putting our trust in his son, Jesus' death. See, look, as you see Ahab in his chariot, dead on the battlefield, He doesn't look much like a king. He's disguised himself as a normal soldier. 850 years later, though, Jesus, the true king of Israel, would die, if you like, on the battlefield of life. He didn't look like a king either. As he hung on a cross, his glory was veiled. As he hung on a cross, he was disguised, if you like, as it were, as a normal person. But unlike Ahab, who was disguised in order to try and avoid 
God's judgment. Jesus deliberately and out of love for the world took on the form of a normal person precisely so that he could take God's judgment in the place of sinners like you and me. No, on our own we cannot escape God's judgment. This morning God says to us, flee from that judgment. I love you too much to believe Satan's lies that judgment won't happen or that you can avoid it yourself. Flee to my son, Jesus. Heed those words that were spoken all those years ago. Everyone, anyone, even us, who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we struggle with this eternal perspective. We struggle to believe that there is a day of reckoning, a day of judgment coming. We thank you that you love us too much to allow us to walk blindly into that day. Thank you that you have warned us. Thank you that you have made the means of passing through that judgment abundantly clear to us. We praise you for Jesus. We praise you for our true king's death in our place. Father, please make us mindful of that. Please give us the courage to speak of that. Amen.